Thanks, Mike. You noticed that Mike prayed for the kids, but he didn't pray for me and for Donna to survive the week of camp. So that leaves the congregation, it leaves you guys responsible to lift us up. Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, pull it out, flip it open, scroll to uh, the book of 1 Samuel, and we are in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel this morning. We are in the fifth week now of our series that we have entitled, Give Us a King. And that title really comes from this morning's chapter about midway through the book of 1 Samuel that does an incredible job of showing us not only the hearts of the people of Israel in their relationship to God, but very much so shows us our hearts in the 21st century in our relationship to God, how much we need Him and, frankly, how much we tend to wander away. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, one of the commentaries that I've used as I've been studying this passage as we've walked through the book of 1 Samuel is by a guy named Ralph Dale Davis. And uh, in his commentary on this passage, he shares a story in which he was, and I'm sure all of us can identify with, that moment where he was cleaning out the garage. Um, nobody wants to. Everybody has to. He's cleaning out the garage. He's getting more and more frustrated as he pulls out another box, another item, and goes, what is this? Why is this here? Why do we still have this? Every family, it's got one, one packer and one purger, right? Which one are you in your relationship? You know. You know. I know which one I am. I'm the purger. Okay, so I read this story. I was like, yes. Is Lana in the room? She's the packer, just for the record. So anyway, Ralph is, is um, going through, and he's cleaning. He's getting frustrated, and he hears a woman's voice call his name, and he snaps back, what? And uh, waits a second, no response. Stands up, turns his head to realize that the woman standing in front of him is not his wife. It is, in his words, the kind, friendly Baptist lady down the street that he has been snapping at now. And, and he said that the humiliation in that moment was twofold. One, because he obviously had to immediately apologize to this woman for snapping at her, but then the double humiliation of having to admit, I'm sorry, I thought you were my wife. And, and his point in that was this, that that, that that moment for him where the real who he was, you know, his, his heart came out. He couldn't hide, uh, he couldn't fake who he wanted the neighbors to think who he was and who he really was deep in his heart became very clear in that moment. He had to admit he was a sinner. And the Scripture, particularly in passages like this, does the very same thing. The Scripture has this ability not only to reveal a great and loving and powerful Savior and Lord in Jesus Christ, which we will see this morning, but it also reveals our hearts. And as we read other stories, we see ourselves in them, and we're reminded of the nature of our heart and how much we need Jesus, how much we need His grace and how much we need His power. And so it is with those eyes that we approach the Scripture here this morning. I'm going to read to us now all of 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's 22 verses. Hang with me now as we come to the Word of God. The Scripture says this in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. First problem. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Being old is not a problem. Your son walking not in the ways of the Lord is a problem. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. 
like all the nations. Appoint a king to judge us like all the other nations. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. In all that, in that day... You will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verse 19, and this is the verse that we've read every week at the beginning of our sermon, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is good. We thank you that it is powerful. We thank you that it is life-changing. We thank you that it is without mistake. And so we submit ourselves to you and to your word, we submit ourselves to King Jesus, the word made flesh. Father, would you turn our hearts afresh towards you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Four ways, four applications this morning, four ways that this passage teaches us afresh how to make Jesus king in our daily lives. Number one is this, and we see this in verses one through three, make Jesus king over your parenting. Some of you are parents. Some of you have children who have already grown and moved on. You are still parents, by the way. Some of you have a desire to be parents, but you are not yet, and you're trusting the Lord to do that. Some of you find great joy in your singleness, and that is absolutely wonderful as well. But God has given everyone somebody to invest in, someone to disciple in. So if you are not a parent, this still applies and is a blessing to you. But looking here through the lens of a parent, first of all, we see Samuel's story reminds us that there is a great challenge of raising our kids to know and follow Jesus. And if you are a kid listening this morning, consider what this means for you. We want you to know Jesus. It matters. 
and it will be a challenge because this world will tell you to follow everything else. It should, though, parents, it should comfort us in some measure that, that leading the next generation of people, of children, to Christ is both important and difficult for this guy Samuel. And Samuel loved the Lord. We really don't see many places in all of his stories that he makes a mistake. Obviously, he does make mistakes just like us, but this guy loved Jesus, and it was a struggle for him. Let that be an encouragement to you that you're not alone. If you've been with us since the beginning of this series, though, in 1 Samuel, you see here that Eli, the priest Eli at the very beginning in chapter 1, his mistake of making his son's priests without God's leading or authorization is now being duplicated by Samuel a generation later, and the elders of Israel call Samuel on his mistake. It does not say explicitly here, but I think that we see in the text that it is probably wrong what Samuel has done in establishing his sons as judges. And again, the primary evidence is because Eli, his predecessor, did the same thing when he made his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, priests without God's calling. Now, what we should also notice here is that the judges, and this is still the time, this is the ending time of judges, people who would lead God's people, The judges were always called by God. The calling, the installation was always a matter of God's sovereignty and of God's grace, and it was never an inherited thing. It was never a dynasty thing, the way that kingship has come to be known in our world uh, even today. Listen to Judges chapter 2 to confirm this reality, both that it's God's job to do calling and that when we usurp things that are God's role to do, when we don't trust Him, one of the results can be that our children pick up on it. Our children tend to see our hypocrisy in action better than anybody else, and their hearts can tend to wander. Look here at Judges chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Then the Lord raised up judges. Whose job is it? The Lord. Who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. How do we reach the heart of of our kids, if you disciple others, meaning you have a daily relationship in which you are helping others know Jesus, how do we do this incredibly important thing of reaching their hearts? How do we do it? I want you to notice something a little bit tragic here um, in the text. Notice that giving them Christian names was not enough. He names them Joel, which literally means the Lord is God. It's a great name. He names his other son Abijah, which means my divine father is the Lord. But just giving them a name and doing this outward external activity had no effect on their inner heart spiritual life. In fact, they grow up to be just like the other two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were given to personal gain, injustice, and bribery, says the scripture. And that pushes me, it pushed me this week towards a question, well, what else is on that list of not enough to reach the next generation's hearts 
for the Lord. If we as parents think that just putting on a Christian TV show at home or sending them to a Christian school or dropping them off once a week at church stuff is enough, I think this passage reminds us that it is not enough. If you want your children to understand what a daily, personal, real relationship with the God of the universe looks like, then it is going to require of you a daily, personal relationship with your kids in which you are showing them. This is what it means to know Jesus. This is what it means to publicly apologize and repent for sin. When you sin in front of your kids, repent in front of your kids. This is what it means to lead your family in spending personal worship time, opening the Bible and reading it together. This is what it looks like. And when you have your own personal worship time, right, you and your Bible, you talking to the Lord, do it in a way that your kids see it. Do it in a way that your spouse sees it so that you might encourage them so that they see that it's not just what you say, it's what you believe, it's who you are. This is an invitation, I think, from God to actively shepherd and disciple the next generation in the two spheres, two places, that God has specifically ordained for this to be. That is the home, your home, and the church, our church. And if that in itself is a new concept to you, I would offer to you the book of Ephesians, very short book, six chapters, and it begins to to paint a picture, give a vision for what it means to raise up in both the home and the church followers who know and love Jesus, that you can show them how to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, I love this verse. It is, a, it is a humbling but an encouraging reminder. It says this, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let me remind you guys of the third, we take four vows when we baptize our kids here. The third vow says this, This is something that we as parents say based on God's grace through his power alone. But we say, listen, this is what I'm committing and covenanting before God with my children. It says this, do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him or her a godly example that you will pray with and for him or her, that you will teach him or her the doctrines of our holy religion and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him or her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I promise that by God's grace, I'm going to do everything I can to teach them to know and follow Jesus. The fourth one that we share together, and this is one that I look at at the congregation and I ask all of you, I say, do you as a congregation, as a church family, undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents, in the Christian nurture of this child. I haven't had anybody yet yell, no! Everybody says yes. Let's continue down that path because I need you, we need you, the church needs you serving and discipling this next generation. Presently as a church, we have a youth team and we have a kids team. By God's grace, someday we'll hopefully have a college team. But when we're talking about the next generation It doesn't just magically happen. It doesn't simply happen because you gave your children a name that reflects God. It is in a daily relationship in the sphere of home and of church. And so I would say this, if you are new to our church, we are thrilled that you are here. We want you to be loved on. We want to serve you. 
And if you have been here more than six months, then lovingly I say to you, we need your help. Get involved in discipling the next generation of young people to know and follow Jesus. I, I believe this about City Kids and Toddler Town and Neighborhood Nursery and anything else that we establish as God continues to grow this church. It is not babysitting. You understand that? It is discipleship. Your kids are too precious and too valuable for us to just babysit them. It is discipleship. And we've not forgotten about you. In the middle of August, we're going to launch our city groups, and that is a place for you guys as adults to be poured into and to sharpen one another and to fellowship and to gather around the Scripture and be encouraged and grow together as disciples of Christ as well. Above all, the Scripture reminds us to pray for our kids. The scripture reminds us that we cannot do this on our own. This is a, a challenge that on our own we cannot do it. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit in our kids' lives, in our lives. It's only by leaning fully on God's grace that we can do this awesome task. Because guess what? We can't change anybody else's heart. I can't change your heart. I can't even change my own heart. God changes hearts. God brings dead hearts to life. And it's a scary thing. You have to trust God with your children, with your family, with the people that you love. But let me remind you again, what we see over and over again in the Old Testament and the New, God loves your children, your people more than you do, better than you do, better than you can. He has never failed them once. He has never sinned against them once. And so you can trust Him Philippians 1.6, he is faithful to complete what he has started. Amen? Number two. Number two, we see from verses four through nine, in particular, this idea, the second idea, reject all substitutes for God the King. Reject all substitutes for God the King. I just want to reread two verses that land in the middle of verses four through nine. This is seven and eight. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God is not unclear about what is happening. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. It is the beginning of folly to desire to be like everyone else. The verse before, the Bible says that the elders came, and this is not a new phrase. Israel keeps saying this over and over and over again. We want to be like all the other nations. It is foolishness. We want to be like them. Many Christians today are terrified to let anybody know that they follow Jesus, to let anybody know to shine for Jesus Christ. We are terrified. We just want to blend in. Shh. Yes, we love Jesus, but we don't talk about it. Just be nice. Don't say anything. Is where our hearts, my heart, can go. But the Bible says, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Follow Jesus, not the crowd. What an opportunity we have that, that they might see something in us, not perfection, but that they might see something in us that would drive them to know Jesus. 
I've told you this before, I bring it up at least once every six weeks. When I was in high school, senior in high school at Covenant Christian School, there was a banner over my chalkboard. Yes, we still use chalkboards at that day and age. And it said this, what is right is not always popular. What is popular is not always right. It's words to live by. It's not a scripture verse. But man, there is a point to be made. Don't look for your ultimate answers, for who you are, for the realities of this world. Do not look to CNN or HBO or ABC or FOX. It's Fox, I know. Look to B-I-B-L-E, if I can be so obvious with you. These things are not true. Do not desire to follow the world, desire to follow Jesus. But here's what happened. God's people face real dangers, and so when they face those real dangers, they got scared. It's the same for us. When we see real dangers, for them it was the Philistines. For, for you, you can name things that cause you anxiety and fear and trouble, and in those moments, we forget and they forgot that God has always been faithful to defend His people. He's always been faithful to care for them. And so instead of looking to their king, they begin to look to a godless culture and say, we want to be like them. They had rejected God as their king, and they had chosen a substitute. They had chosen a substitute. We know, and this is important to catch, thinking about what's ultimately going on here. We know from the book of Deuteronomy earlier that asking for a king in itself was not a sin. But God does in Deuteronomy give very clear boundaries for if they wanted a king. So listen to the pertinent passage here. This is Deuteronomy chapter 17. God's going to make it explicitly clear here. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, who gave you the land? God did. And you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Who chooses? God chooses. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Here's the qualifications. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Why? Because all the foreigners in that day rejected God. This is a heart issue again. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Don't go back to death. Don't go back to slavery. 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Why? Because it's wrong and stupid. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Why? Because it's wrong and it's stupid. If Evangeline were in the room, she would have stopped me right now and said, don't say stupid. Don't say the word stupid in our house. I repent publicly. Uh, let me just make an observation here, first of all. This is not a political sermon. This is scripture. But I just want to make one observation here. Our nation was founded with a reasonably good understanding of the reality of total depravity. This Bible stuff. The idea that every part of every heart in the world has been damaged by sin, and we need a new heart from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the mid-1800s, a guy named Lord Acton made this statement. He said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That is a reality moved from the Scripture and the idea of total depravity. But don't just come to this passage and find lessons on limited government or good government. Come here looking at your heart for the sin problem that resides in all of us. We love to say, look at that person over there. They are so jacked up. The Bible says, look in your own heart and see the same issue. 1 Samuel 16 is going to say this, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God's people here had consistently preferred a substitute Savior. It's a heart problem. I don't want you, God. I want something else. Psalms 118 flies in the face of that idea. Psalms 118 says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Samuel here, the man of the moment, experiences what Moses experienced before him, what the prophets will experience after him, but most importantly, what Jesus himself experiences from each and one, every one of us every day. Luke 19, 14 says this, this is God talking, or this is people, God's people talking Luke 19, 14, quote, we do not want this man to reign over us. He's talking about Jesus. And they say, Israel says, we do not want this man to reign over us. So believer, does your heart rejoice? Does your heart warm? Does your heart leap to the idea that Jesus is king in my life. I am relieved of the task of trying to do it myself because he has a better way. I rejoice in submitting to him and his leadership and his word and his Holy Spirit. That's what I want. Or are you still in a place where you desire the toxic, broken hopelessness of self-lordship, of self-kingship? I know better, God. I know what you say, but I, I, I've got it. Jesus is inviting you to let him lead in your life. Something else to notice here, the leaders here, the elders, they don't talk to God at all. Leaders lead when they submit to God in prayer. And they don't do that. Good leaders, I would say to you, are good prayers. I'm talking about in your family, in your church, in your life, in your business, wherever you may be. Good leaders are good prayers. You can show people the gospel through your prayer life. The elders didn't pray. They just wanted to choose their own leader. They wanted to leave God out of it. And in their apparent emergency, notice that there was no crying out to God, as there had been in previous chapters that we have looked at. So remember, God has already delivered Israel in 1 Samuel 4. And in 1 Samuel 7, we've already seen God's people repent and turn their hearts back to God and say, God, whatever you want, that's what, that, what we want. But here we are a chapter later. They're looking to surface solutions for in-depth problems. If you want to see change in your life, then address the spiritual reality underneath them. This is from the commentary. Again, this is Ralph Dale Davis. He says this, we have a tendency to assess our problems mechanically rather than spiritually. Our first impulse is to assume there is something wrong in our techniques. The need is for adjustment, not repentance. 
There is something wrong in the system that needs doctoring. How easy for even energetic evangelicals to look for a new gimmick rather than cry out for a new heart. God has been faithful. Don't forget that. God says, you know, my people have been unfaithful since I freed them from slavery 400 years ago or from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But what he's really saying is he's reminding them, I have been faithful even during that difficult time. From the moment I created you, I have been faithful to you. Don't forget that. Don't even get lost in your unfaithfulness. See the reality of my unending faithfulness and come back to me. There's an invitation. Return to the Lord. Uh, If you read the CBR Community Bible reading, we started the Old Testament book of Ezekiel this week, and uh, we read the first five chapters, and there is a whole lot of judgment Justice and truth. There's a whole lot of God's people have done a lot of bad things. <laughs> it is intense. But there's a promise built into all of it. If you, if you fast forward to Ezekiel chapter 36, one of the most amazing passages in all the Old Testament fits here perfectly. Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water in you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's an invitation, even in the Old Testament, to forgiveness, to second chances, to hope, to let God change your life from the inside out. He will put a new heart and a new spirit within you. All you have to do is ask. And believe it or not, that's what the last couple verses here in this passage tell us. Third and finally, I would say to you, rejoice in the triumph of Christ the King. What are you talking about? Jesus' name isn't in here? Yes, it is. Rejoice in the triumph of Christ the King. As we go back and look from verses 10 all the way to the end in verse 22, There's a long list that begins here, right? And it's a list of all the negative things about what an earthly king is going to do. Nothing in that list is particularly positive. Forced labor, taking of laborers, taking of horses, taking of money, raising an army. Now, like I said earlier, as we understand the big picture here, it is not saying that raising an army or collecting taxes is inherently evil. It doesn't say that. But it shows that the tendency of human hearts is to always take advantage of power, to take advantage of an opportunity. And so the Bible does say, it uses the word take and best five times. The king will take your best. The king will take your best. And that's not the overall biblical paradigm. The biblical paradigm is this. The King of kings and Lord of lords will give extravagantly, abundantly, beyond what you can ever hope for or imagine. He will give you everything that you need. And in a responsive worshipfulness, we say, I want to give back to you, God, everything that I have out of thankfulness for your grace and love and power. That's the biblical paradigm. This passage doesn't even begin to to cover the, the historic horrific abuses that kings in Israel and just over human history will exert on people. From the Bible, one that comes to mind is 1 Kings chapter 21. It's the story of Naboth's vineyard. Are you familiar with this story? Naboth is just a guy who has a really nice vineyard in Israel. And King Ahab, who was a wicked king 
and his wife, Queen Jezebel, who was messed up, they get jealous of Naboth. They're like, man, I really want that vineyard. They have everything. I really want his vineyard. King Ahab pouts. Queen Jezebel's like, don't worry, honey, I'll take care of it. She has Naboth murdered, seizes the vineyard, and gives it to Ahab as a Christmas present. Here you go, hon. It's the perversity of hearts. Our hearts. It's gross. But God has a better way. Do you know that in the whole history of Israel, I wanted to see, I love reading through 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and just seeing the story of the kings of Israel. Do you know if you go through and look at every single one in Israel and in Judah, that there are 32 bad kings and one bad queen, not to be outdone. And it says of all of them, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There are only six not-so-great kings. Yeah. And of them it says he did what was right, but he didn't rid the land of idolatry. There's only four kings in all of the Bible in Israel that, that do a good job. It's David, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, and Josiah. And even those four really good ones, the Bible is explicit about all four that they make incredibly huge, sinful mistakes. The Bible is not unclear. And so what is it doing? The Old Testament is screaming, we need a better king. The Old Testament is screaming, a better king is coming. Isaiah chapter 9, a king is coming. And the New Testament screams, rejoice, a king is here. The king that you want, the king that you need, he is here. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect and only king that you need. He's everything that you need. He's perfectly just. The book of Deuteronomy, verse, or chapter 10, verse 17, says this, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Samuel's sons couldn't hack it. Jesus has never, never been unjust, and he never will be. He dispenses justice and truth, and he punishes sin. And what's interesting is we love justice when it's for somebody else. Not such a big fan when I deserve the justice. Jesus satisfies that. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly merciful. He's the only one who possibly could. Well, how does he do that? The Bible tells us that as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus is the righteous king who came down, the son of God who came down to us. He lowered himself. He became human. He took on human flesh to save us, but with one significant exception, he never sinned. God became man, but he never sinned. He's the perfect sacrifice for sin, the perfect spotless lamb of God. The Old Testament, they would offer up lambs, but they were never enough until Jesus came. And Jesus died on a literal cross, and he paid the literal penalty for our sins so that you and I would not have to die. He's the only one who could. He's the only one who would and he has done it for you. He's the great high priest who makes intercession for his people. He's the great high priest who has given direct access and personal relationship with God the Father. You do not have to go through anybody. Go through Jesus. 
He's the great prophet. He's the final prophet. He's the word of God. He speaks the word of God, and he is the word made flesh. He saved you from slavery, not just slavery to Egypt or to some political dictator. He saved you from slavery and bondage to sin and death and has set you free. So you need the right king to lead you and go before you and fight your battles. And notice that Jesus is not a king who takes your children. Jesus is a king who makes you his children. You see the difference? The Bible is setting him up. He isn't a king who selfishly takes or keeps the best. He is a God who selflessly gives everything, gives his best away, gives himself. He's the only one who could. He's a king who will always lead you in truth, who will always win your battles. The king who they will anoint is King Saul. King Saul can't hack it. King David can't either. Samuel, at the moment, he can't do it. If we go back to the beginning, Adam certainly couldn't do it. Only Jesus can do it. You know, we sing a song around here often, Jesus is better. I love that song. Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. Raise the anthem, our loudest praises ring. We crown him Lord of all. Maybe today is, is the day that you would come back to the Lord. You know him, but you have walked away and you say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be king of my life. Maybe you've never come to know Jesus in a personal way. Today would be the day that you say, Lord Jesus, I confess to you. I admit I have messed this thing up. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Be my savior. I take myself off the throne of my life. I, I, I can't do it. I want you to be the king. Let's take a moment and let's pray together to Jesus the king.